0: This is a main hustle media podcast. Yo, this was shining from the single simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back. Listening to
1: militantly mixed. Hey y'all, this is uh, Charmaine here. Um, host of the militantly mixed podcast and um i just want to say that i'm not going to be able to do my my regular intros to this week's episode um as earlier this week uh, one of my cats Ronan, passed away and if you've listened to any of my shows you've heard me talk about them my cats before and how special they are to me, which I know anybody who has pets they probably feel the same. But uh, I don't have a lot of people in my life that I love as much as I love my cats, so I'm having a very difficult time right now, and I don't think I can give my full energy to the show. So I'm going to put forward uh, the episodes as they are, with the with the interviews as they stand. <laughs> And uh, please forgive me in advance for not being able to maintain my full energy uh, for the show at the moment. It was my goal for the month of March to produce shows with mixed-race women podcasters, and uh, that's what you're going to hear today with my guest Ginger from the Squeeze and Lemons podcast. And I do have two other interviews scheduled this month with uh, mixed-race women podcasters, and I will... If I'm in a place where I can devote my focus for those interviews, I will keep those active. If not, I will have to reschedule them. Because what is uh, really important to me about Militantly Mix is that I'm providing and giving a platform to the guests to share their mixed race experience, and I want them to feel that they're in a, a fully focused and safe space for themselves. And if I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling, I don't believe that I can provide that. Um, And I would rather not just put out an interview for the sake of putting it out, I'd much rather it be a full and complete, um, safe and loving space between myself and my guests. So for now, I'm going to be putting out the interview that I have already recorded that I recorded a couple of weeks ago, and um, and again, Ginger, when you're listening to this, I apologize that I'm not able to give my my normal intro to your episode, but our, inter- episode, our interview was wonderful and I, I know that it will stand on its own, um, so thank you for coming on the show and thank you for sharing your story with us, um, to the audience, uh, just stick with me for a few weeks while I kind of get through the hard part of this loss and... Uh, Forgive me for any kind of loss in quality or or timeliness uh, Right now because I am in a a pretty rough space and I'm not very comfortable sharing emotion with folks I've always said that it's a lot easier for me to share anger uh, But sadness is it's very uncomfortable for me, which I'm sure is the case for a lot of people so um, I hope you guys can understand and, and stick with me. I will eventually come back to my full strength but I'm in a a pretty low place at the moment so uh, with that I'm gonna go ahead and switch it over to my interview with Ginger from the Squeeze and Levin's podcast and um, I'll come back when I can come back everybody
0: So, we are back, and my guest this week is Ginger, fellow WOC podcaster from the show Squeezing Lemons. Uh, why don't hey. you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your show, and we'll get into it.
2: Okay. So, our show is called Squeezing Lemons. You can find it on SoundCloud and iTunes. And my co host and I, Deshaun, We talk about life, social, financial, emotional lemons, So we're really just kind of talking about whatever is giving us um, some kind of pain or some kind of annoyance (laughs) uh, (laughs) in the recent um, time that we record, but we do talk a lot about race, and I feel like partly through this show, and we started last year, we've got like 11, 12 episodes up around now. Um, I've really started to talk through a lot of my like racial identity and things like that. Um, she's black, monoracial, and I'm mixed. So you can check it out. There's actually one of the episodes is called Media Representing, and I kind of get into it a lot more on that one than some of the other episodes, I Mm. feel like, but yeah, um, so you guys can check it out on either of those platforms. You said you started last
0: year. Um, how frequently do you, do you drop a show every week or is it a monthly thing? Or? Oh, We wish
1: we could do a show every week. Oh. <laughs>
2: uh, um, <laughs> we, we try to get in a rhythm, but it's kind of been once or twice a month. Okay. Um, at this point, it's not a moneymaker or anything. We just we're really just having fun. And you can kind of hear that on the episodes. Yeah. Um, We're hoping to kind of get more serious about it and do it more regularly. But for right now, it's at least um, once a month, Um, kind of twice a month. Right, so you and I uh, connected
0: through the WOC podcaster group and uh and so this group has actually yielded a couple guests for me at this point because we just happened to be talking and then you realize someone's mixed, and then of course I go in for the for the please come on my show the second I find out that somebody's mixed <laughs> so this this group has been great because it does seem so far to be very supportive and and mm-hmm. you know I haven't been hit with the well your show's about race so it's political type of thing which I do get mm. on the more mainstream podcasting support groups or resource groups and things. But it's it's been nice. We have good topics of conversation. And we have a lot of like, hey, this is something I do. Does anybody need this support? So I really mm-hmm. enjoy that. And I'm glad that through these conversations, you and I connected. And on your show you do a segment of what's giving you life and, mm-hmm. you, and you just kinda share something that's positive, which I, I like that idea. You start the show off that way. I was for months and months I had just had I was just like letting whatever heavy ass subject of our interviews were just ride out and then the show just ended and people were just like, Oh my gosh, it's so emotional every <laughs> time. Uh, so now but- I try to end the show with one of those type of positive type of things. So tell me a little bit about what kind of got you into wanting to talk about this stuff and like, you know, what is, what's it, what's it
2: fulfilling for you to be able to do it? Yeah. The podcast has been fun because uh, Deshaun and I work together now and soon we probably won't be working together um in the near future but we kind of came together over Beyonce because she's awesome (laughs) and we talk a lot about race in our personal conversations and she's real into podcasts so she was like I wanted to start a podcast for like years now and I was like all right how about you and I do a podcast and we basically just talk about whatever we would regularly talk about so it kind of has been like our discussions about race and pop culture Like how we would usually talk about it in private and then just putting it on more of a public platform. Right. Yeah. So it's been fun because, like I said, it's been kind of like this past year has been kind of a racial identity journey, Um, like a new stage of it for me. And Mm -hmm. I think partly because of the podcast, for sure.
0: Right. Yeah, I definitely noticed that when I I, cause same like Deshaun, I wanted to do this podcast for a couple of years, um, or I just wanted Mm -hmm. to do a podcast at first. And then, and then it was, you know, the thing that I lacked the most in my life is being able to talk about my mixed identity to other people who would get it. I talk about my mixed race identity all the time. And my monoracial friends are just like, Oh, this one with the race again. Um, But, but getting to start to show and connect with other mixed race people. And realizing how if we could have just talked all along or we could have found each other more easily all along, we wouldn't have felt so isolated. Because that seems to be the common theme of my show is, is how isolated we were as, as mixed kids and, right. and mixed adults. And so for in that case, the show has really made that be more of a thing. So now... Whereas in my social circles, I was always the one that talked about race. Now I'm the one who's like professionally mixed, (laughs) which is like the (laughs) thing. Like I'm trying to be a new level. Yeah. Right. Like I'm like, I'm, I'm out here trying to be professionally mixed race. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's kind of what the show has given me, but, um, I have listened to, well, I've listened to one of your episodes and I'm, I'm working, I started the, and then I started to go back from the, from the beginning and I started listening to the first one. So I'll, I'll get all the way caught up through it, but let's get into you as a person. Let's talk about your, um, ethnic identity and sort of what being mixed was for you as a kid, what you understood about being mixed as a
2: kid. Well, my origin story of my racial identity goes back to (laughs) preschool. So when I was in preschool, like a three year old, four year old, I went to a very um, working class white preschool with all white kids and I am white. My dad is Swedish and my mom is South Korean. So I'm biracial Asian white and the kids made fun of me like incessantly and didn't want to play with me. And you know, they gave me all the teasing rhymes and riddles and pulled back their eyes to make them really horizontal and like flatten their noses with their hand and things like that. And so I would actually, in an effort to try to belong and feel accepted by the kids, I would go home and blame my mom. Like she made me this way and it's her fault that the kids don't want to play with me. So I would scream at her as like a little four year old that I am American and you are Korean and I don't want anything to do with you don't teach me Korean language, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to see it, like as a a little kid screaming at my adult mother, you know? And so this really severed my relationship with my mom and really like it has been the root of a lot of my identity because of really what it's coming from is this monoracial racism. Um, as well as just white supremacist racism in general, you know, of these kids that didn't know what they were doing. And they didn't know what kind of impact it would have on like the rest of my life and the relationship with my own mother. But that's really what happens is that just the teasing on the playground really just drew drove us apart because of the way I handled it and the way that my mom as a a new immigrant to the United States um, really only had me like there was no other connection she had to the United States, except for my father, and that was like super painful for her as well, and it's been a source of contention for our relationship even through my adulthood right so that's kind of where it starts. and I think a
0: lot of times too, particularly with immigrant families, which I also come from, is that they they are not equipped to understand what your their mixed race children are going through because they're they're their own fish out of water they don't even realize Mm -hmm. that you're also somewhat of a fish out of water and and no one's there's no pamphlet on like hey this is what you do when you got a mixed race kid hopefully I will write that one day and become rich and famous no um hey man I'm down for that I
2: heard you say it on another episode I'm an educator trained educator we should totally we we should
0: we should do this kind of stuff um, camps he, workshops whatever it is yeah it's it's just one of those things where you realize because and, and even as an adult like I've never wanted kids and so I mm-hmm. I know that I, I and the the sad side of that is that now that I have I'm such a champion for mixedness like I would raise the hell out of my little mixed race <laughs> warrior right
1: but like I just right. don't want
0: kids but I see it in other places and and you see these things that you know your mother didn't know how to equip you to handle the teasing right for this because she wouldn't even necessarily understand it because Even however she could have been teased as an immigrant wouldn't be the same kind of way that you would be teased as a mixed race kid, right? And then your your monoracial white father, same thing, like, especially because Mm -hmm. and probably because he is white, having probably never dealt with something about being teased about... Um, right racial presentation he'd just be like "What? It's just your life you know
2: yeah kids are mean yeah Yeah, kids are mean like
0: suck it up type of thing which i think is what happens to a lot of us mixed race kids and it's not Mm -hmm. it's not the fault of the parent it's just that they don't have the equipment to to prepare us and so we don't Mm -hmm. have the tools to defend and and raise our you know protect ourselves i guess against it and you know in your case the fallout is that you have a, a contentious relationship i guess with your mom So as you're trying to deal with feeling American, don't understand why the kids are teasing you, putting it on your mother that she's the reason and everything like that. How what did you think you were?
2: Hmm. Um, Well, my parents divorced when I was seven years old. So the twist to the whole thing is that I ended up living with my father because he was more financially stable. And my mom uh, moved to the town next door. And then a year later moved. So I grew up in Connecticut. A year later, she moved to Florida with um, a new person who is Korean, who she's been married to ever since. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the the tie between my mother and I was severed when I was in preschool. But then she, like, moved across the country. So I felt this, like, abandonment from not just my mom, but anything Korean, anything that would other me in the white school that I was in where I was growing up with my dad. So... I just tried to pass. Like I grew up with all white kids. Um there was very few children of color. Like I could count on one hand like how many children of color were also in the school with me or in my class or mm-hmm. in the whole school. And I really just tried to pass as, as much as I could, but there was, you know, I have a lot of memories of these specific incidents where it kept people would keep pointing out to me that I wasn't the same as everybody else and something was different about me and calling me chink on the bus ride home, teasing right. me for the way my face looks, like all those kinds of things, um, all the way through middle school. And in high school, it seemed to calm down a little bit and racial identity was like less stringent for me. Um, but I felt like throughout my childhood, I mean, middle school is such a formative time, right? That those where I was trying to find my identity and trying to like grapple with like, what's my relationship to my mom and my face and why does it look this way? And um, how can I become closer to this thing that is othering me? And how can I make that more empowering for me rather than like a negative mark on me? I was trying to learn Korean. Like my dad would always buy me like uh Korean language books and try to get me, you know, the tools that he could access because this is before the internet right. this is before Korean drama This is before Netflix, right? None of that shit existed. Before white kids
0: started listening to K-pop.
2: There was no (laughs) K-pop. Exactly. So he was trying to like give me what I could, but it was just so emotional for me to try to do it because I'm like, why do I have to do this on my own? I don't have a teacher. I'm not immersed in it. I can't, like, I didn't even have like a unafision. Like I couldn't even turn on and listen to what the sounds are supposed to be like in a sentence, you know? So it was really hard. Um, See during middle school, if you had been a mixed race Korean
0: kid here in LA, you would have had it. Because the, the, we have a population here, but in Connecticut, which is so weird that you're from Connecticut too, because I have so many guests who happen to be mixed race for growing up in Connecticut and were the only really? person of color in their school. And I'm like, man, they could have just like made a whole class of y'all. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> it's a small great. state. <laughs> yeah, for real.
0: <laughs> That's funny.
2: But it's, it's funny too, because my dad, um, there was such a lack of representation in the media and there yeah. were so few role models that... Every time there was an Asian person on TV, my dad would li- literally point to the TV and go, hey, Ginge, Asians. No, no. Like every single time there was, and it was, I mean, it was like a positive <laughs> and negative thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It was like, oh, look, we're there. But also like this person's delivering Chinese food or... <laughs> yeah. Were, oh, God. You know what I mean? Like it was so few times that there would be Asians on there. Um, the only person... And I talk about this on the Squeeze and Lemons podcast when I do the Media Representing episode with Deshaun. Connie Chung was the only person that was regularly like on TV for right. me growing up, right. as a role model, and that was it. There was no, and she's a reporter. Like there's no character development. We don't get to know her as a person. It's right. just like she's reporting news. So, like that's kind of what my childhood was like and uh i had some very tenuous relationships with some of my friends um growing up as well um i was told like when i was trying to figure out my identity and things i had one korean friend who was adopted by white people and didn't want anything to do with her koreanness because really it was just like how she looked she didn't really have any relationship at all right to it. And so I understand that struggle. So I would try to talk to her about how, like, I was also disconnected, but also, you know, chink, chinkinized, like, you know, called a chink and, like, right. uh, other for it. But she and another friend of ours who was white, like, basically got on the phone on um, three way. I, I remember day. those days. Yeah. And they told me that basically my friends told me that I was a burden. Like, my problems were, were a burden for them. They didn't want to hear it. So, yeah. like, not only as an only child growing up with my dad, a young girl growing up with my dad, did I feel like I was alone, but I also didn't have anyone to talk to about this, like, racial identity I was trying to form. Right. And when I tried to talk to somebody that I thought were, like, my closest friends, they told me not to talk about it at all.
0: And see, yeah, and that's the thing about being mixed that I I try to tell the monoracial people that that do kind of you know that love you and everything like that and and believe of themselves to be some kind of an ally But at the end of the day, because they can't really relate or they think like there's just so many other bigger problems than the problem you're talking about right now, you know, for them in their view that they're just like, you know, can't you just suck it up? I think like we we have this environment of just suck it up. It's not that big of a problem. And that's because they're not sitting in the same kind of isolation that we are, because not only are we isolated as being different from all of the monoracial people in our life but we're also we're isolated from multiple groups you know, you couldn't just walk mm-hmm. up to a Korean and be like, hi, I'm a mixed Korean. Let's be friends. And, they'll, and they're and they like, yeah, sure. We absorb you into our community. Because a lot right. of times, you know, <laughs> especially in Asian communities, you know, mine, same as the Japanese, they're not very open to mixed race people um, within, right. you know, the greater culture or whatever. They're, they're considered not Korean or not Japanese or not Chinese or whatever. And then we're also here in the states in which everybody thinks we're, we're all Chinese. And so we're sitting yeah. here, not only were we fighting for like acceptance and identity within our own ethnic groups, but we're also fighting to be for their racism to be directed correctly. You know, which is the most right. baffling thing. It's like, I'm not Chinese, I'm Japanese. And they're like, same yeah. difference. Who cares? Haya. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> which is like our whole childhood as mixed Asian kids, um, where where you're just like, you oh gosh, to try to explain this, even to like my black mixed friends, of which I am also a black mix, to try to explain to black friends like hey the reason why i get so bent out of shape when someone calls me korean or chinese or whatever is because i'm being a race like my japanese identity is a race mm-hmm. but they're like but you guys do all look alike and then i'm like but we do not it's just that you don't have the reason <laughs> like you don't have a reason to know the difference between our eye shape and our head shape you know or how upset you know, are when you accidentally you,
2: your monoracial black friends don't like it when people say all black people look the same right. you know it's like What's maddening to me is that these microaggressions of mono racism, because that's what the whole problem is. It's like Mm -hmm. the way we see race is that you're only one thing. You could only be one thing. So that when you're like um, going against the binary of one or the other, it's like, well, you can't possibly do that. That doesn't exist. Like that's why there's a ratio of it. Right. And so mono racial peoples that are not white. They enact this racism that they would not want to have on people who are multiracial, which is like so funny to me in not a haha, but like an ironic right. way. Yeah. You know? And
0: it's weird because you, as a mixed Asian kid, you end up glomming on, like, as much as you hate when somebody, like you said, chinkifies you or whatever, yeah. Um. Uh. as much as you hate it, if there's nothing else where you're at, and you do right. see something from an Asian group that's different from you, you do kind of like for a split second, you're like friends, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> I had this like Chinese um, uh, cabbage patch kid, w- you know, it was like at first they just had like a brunette, a raven haired, a blonde and a redhead. And that was like, they had a boy version, and a girl version. And that was all they had. And then they decided to open it up for diversity. And we got an Asian one. And it was like literally like Chinese pajamas and brown hair. It, it was just the, the brunette, cabbage patch but with slightly darker plastic and a a Chinese pajama thing and I got that for Christmas Mm -hmm. one year from my Asian side of the family my Japanese side of the family and and really this is how I remember unwrapping this on Christmas day unwrapping it and looking at her and making a face and they go well they'd only had a Chinese one so like even at that age you know them being able to clock that I also looked at this and was like but you know because it wasn't right. like it was my British grandmother giving it to me. It was my Japanese side of the family giving it to me. It was like, look, we did what we could. There are no right. Japanese dolls in America, so here's what we got, you know. Um, <laughs> and you're just like, okay, great. She's Japanese, I guess. Or then I made a whole backstory for her where she was like mixed Japanese and Chinese. and that. Oh,
2: I love it. You know, like
0: because I had to find a way to connect to her because <laughs> we, you know, we didn't get many things that look like us uh, whether it was a representation in, t- in media or toys that we played with like how many fucking blonde dolls that i was given oh as a God. gift that i ended up cutting the hair off of because I just how bad hated did i it. want to be
2: blonde yeah. see
0: i have the opposite i found blonde hair so repellent because nobody in my family had blonde hair so it was just like this was an infiltrator you <laughs> know, this blonde yeah. doll was infiltrating my safe brunette space because on the Japanese side, everybody had brown or black hair. And on um, even my British grandmother, on my dad's side, she was the kind of white lady that had black hair, um, right. like black hair and blue eyes. She did eventually start dying it blonde because I remember when I was little, little, she had mm-hmm. her natural hair. But when I got older, she she had blonde hair. And again, she became this like image of creepiness to me because (laughs) my world wasn't filled with blonde people it just wasn't I didn't know them I mean
2: so I went to school with all white kids so there was plenty of blonde people but in my personal life there wasn't really that many blondes My ironically my two best friends in high school were blonde Irish girls and when the three of us would go out (laughs) I mean I was so ignored like I could not even describe to you how ignored I was by other like dudes trying to hit on the three of us. Like I never got any like drop of attention at all. Not it even was like the exoticizing was like, attention? Not not at that time. Huh. Once I went to college and after college I did get a lot of that. A lot of the exoticization. But yeah, hanging Gosh, out with those so blonde weird. girls really kind of messed with me a little bit. It just um, shows
0: me how different things are. Like depending on where you are geographically If you're, if you're, if you're othered or exoticized differently. And like, for me, it went, like you said earlier, something that made me think of this. Um, You know, when you're a kid, you're just this weird looking mixed kid, weird looking mixed kid. You get into junior high and people are starting to realize that their body parts do things when they look at certain people Mm -hmm. and, but they're still confused. They still want to kind of hate you, but I don't know why they, they're confused. They don't know what to do. So they'll squeeze your butt and then call you chink or something. Um, And then by high school, though, everything that I used to get made fun of as a mixed kid, you know, the fact that I was yellow skin, but I had, you know, black features, I had a black booty Mm -hmm. and black lips and stuff like that. Now, those were all the sexualized things about me. So it just like really crossed over. So by the time I was like eighth grade and up, I was now a sexual object because of my mixed features. And in your case, you're ignored through it until you get to college. And that's a geographic thing.
2: I think so. I think the context matters, but also like what was happening in the larger society, once the census allowed you to pick more than one race, I mean, I felt relieved. I was mm-hmm. called down to the principal's office in middle school because I refused to pick a box. Yeah, And I was I asked, like, that too. like, why didn't you pick a box? And I'm like, cause I did not want to, you know, I'm sitting across from this woman that looks like Mrs. Santa Claus, like quintessentially <laughs> white. And she's like, pick a box. And she was nice about it, but I'm like, Cool, now I have to again erase one side of me right. and and not you're like, speak look at my... my face, what would you I pick? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> I'm like, uh, I don't want to do it, but you know, I felt like the legitimate legitimization that we got from the census really started to show like the shift in the way people thought about multiracial peoples and also mm. ethnically ambiguous people or like faces started to become. Commercialized. Like that was something you could make money off of, and in something you could use to diversify your uh, corporation or your brand, or, you know, using models and actresses or actors that are ethnically ambiguous started to become a thing in like early 2000s. But what was frustrating about that was
0: that they were becoming a thing and they were becoming a thing of beauty, but they were not allowed to be their whole package. They had to be like palatable black, you know, mixed black person mm-hmm. you're light skin, you know so you're a you're the form of beauty we're going to allow for black people you're palatable black uh and there was a lot of asian mixes that were becoming supermodels as well i'm trying to think of the name of them well there was one japanese model uh jenny shimitsu um and her whole thing was that she was kind of dudeish and asian and people were like they make gay asians you know Um, Mm. so that was that was its own thing but there was a few that were like either mixed cambodian and white or thai and white that kind of got popular because they were sort of a palatable version of an asian um and honestly asians do that too but japanese chinese like everybody does that the lighter the skin um you are the more special you are and stuff Mm
1: -hmm. um
0: so yeah like it was a weird mixed bag of like being excited that you could finally see mixed people but then like hide your mix the hide your mixness that was happening to us was happening to them as well
2: yeah yeah that's a good point yeah and I feel like uh within my own home so at my my dad's house it was just me and him and race didn't come up within the household unless you know I was talking about it but at Mm -hmm. my mom's house when I would visit which was scarce I would visit like twice a year maybe going growing up middle school high school um and it's so Korean in that house because you know, both the adults are Korean. They also have a child together who is my baby sister. And um, she and I are close now because I decided to move down to Florida after I graduated undergrad so I could have some kind of relationship with her and some mm-hmm. kind of relationship with my mom. Um, but I was not enough for sure. For like in right. like so many ways I was shown. I was not welcome. I was not enough. And I, a lot of it has, a, like, I had a lot of t- tension about that. And I've dealt with a lot of, I guess, how would I call it? Um, I don't know, kind of anger and frustration about sure, that whole yeah. situation. And because it's hard to decide or understand where was that coming from? Was it coming from my mom? Was it coming from my stepdad? Was it a combination of both? Was it you know, because of me, which children often try to like kind of internalize. And so I was never going to be Korean enough. I couldn't speak Korean. All they did was speak Korean. So I was like totally cut out from all of the conversations all the time. So like even a dinner table conversation,
0: you were not, uh, you were just sort of sitting in a puddle of people not addressing you.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's real Korean to talk to the parents about the child that's sitting right there. So <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like, yeah, but that would drive me crazy because I was like, and I've always like known who I was as like a person, not necessarily my racial identity, right. but I've always been very opinionated, like super smart head of my class. So I was always like empowered in that way. And like, mm. I know who I am. I know myself. I know my values, my my likes dislikes what i want to do with myself in the future and so i'd sit at this dinner table and my mom is like a whole thing uh when they would have guests over korean guests she would introduce me and first of all some of these people had never heard of me before at all oh really so i'd like just appear and they she'd be like oh this is my older daughter and they're like you have an older daughter and i'm like cool not only are there no pictures of me in this entire house, wow. but like you've never once dropped my name. And so this goes back to like her whole origin story of like how she got to the States. And like, mm. I think she has a lot of shame and apprehension around telling that story because people assumed she was a prostitute and, um, which she wasn't. And yeah, my dad Korean was military, immigrants have it rough which in particular wasn't. about that. Yeah.
0: Like more so than any other Asians that come here to the States. For some reason, the Koreans get this reputation more than anybody. And it probably has a fallback to do with the Korean War.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. It definitely goes back to like militarism in the peninsula of Korea. But yeah, so she would they would talk about me in front of me in Korean, as I know they're totally talking about me because I can read body language well. Um, partly because of these experiences, <laughs> right? And um, I'm like, why don't you just say it to my face? And I'd be, like, so defiant. I'm like, you can ask me. Like, these are bilingual like, people. They can speak English, too. I'm like, you can just ask me instead of asking her. But that was, like, so not okay, like, so culturally right. taboo. Yeah. So I was just, like, not doing any of the things to get accepted because <laughs> I was never taught what to do. And it totally went against my whole, like, Americanness, this whole like I'm a strong independent woman to be passive and submissive to right people that I felt like should just address me you know directly I'm a person that has thoughts but yeah it it, it was uh, an interesting experience going going um to my mom's house as a kid it's it's funny to hear you t- uh, talk about some of this stuff
0: because there is actually a lot of cultural crossover, and as much as Asians would not like to say this, but I guess it takes a All mixed right. Asian American to be able to say it, um, is that there's a lot of things like you say, and I'm like, oh shit, the Japanese do that too. You know, like that was my yeah. situation. Like because when I I don't know if I told you this in our pre-screen, but I have mentioned it on the show before that like if I was with my grandmother and we encountered other Japanese people in the town we lived in, I was a visiting friend's kid i was not her grandchild Uh, and part of that had to do with the fact that my my mother was 15 when she had me so like the math wouldn't Mm -hmm. have worked you know so there was that Mm -hmm. like that dishonor to the family you know and then on top of it my grandmother couldn't tell if people could tell i was black you know um because black people could and would come up to us frequently and be like you're black right you know and and she would say you know what just happened, and I was like, Well, like, you speak English, you know that they just asked me if I was black, but she wants to know what, why did that happen? What was the tell that allowed them to know? Um, because she couldn't tell, and so she's terrified that some, you know, wizened Japanese would be able to figure this out, you know. <laughs> so I couldn't possibly be a relation because of that. Like, what if they figure out that I'm black? Um, and so. So, yeah, we had to keep that kind of thing secret. And also they do the same thing, that they do talk about you in the third person when you're standing right in front of them. And, you know, like you pick up, if you're around it, you pick up language here and there. But because they weren't actively teaching us, and in in particular with the Japanese, they were basically just told not to teach us um, Japanese because it would confuse our little brains. um, Yeah. That, you know, like there was only certain words that I started to know that referred to me um hambun it means half and um oh. and and also uh, Yonbonichi means means a quarter so i started asking specifically you know what is my thing i'm not hambun like my mom i'm mm. i'm yonbonichi, you know so uh and uh and so i would start to realize that i was i was the little mixed kid the little half breed you know that they were referring to if they if they did talk about me and I imagine that a lot of the conversation is just like because it's a very Japanese thing oh I'm so sorry for you that you have these mixed mm. kids or these mixed grandkids right. and same with me like if I approach a Japanese and I'm like wa, yon bonichi ni desu. I'm a quarter Japanese and they're like ah, <laughs> that's so cute that you drink your Japanese but you know you're not right you know like right a really like just a break in the in my excitement about who I am or who my identity right. what my identity is is like Prump your brakes, appreciate oh, that you yeah. care, but you're not. Yeah.
2: Total denial of a multiracial reality, total denial of multiracial experiences. And this is what happens um, I think in multiracial, monoracial interactions a lot. The message Ultimately is that it does not matter how you as a multiracial biracial person identifies the power comes from the community Or the power comes from the family who claims the individual or the power comes from the monoracial person, right? It's not that I can claim my own identity. It comes from outside and I think that part is what makes it so frustrating That's a
0: really powerful statement, too And I've had not heard it even put remotely like that before but that's absolutely the case Yeah, because while they tell you pick one, and you're like, okay, well, let's see, I present kind of more on the of color side, so I'll go with that, and then and then the people from that group are like, but, you know, and then you're like, okay, well, then I'll oh the other side, and they're like,
2: yeah, but,
1: you know, so you're absolutely (laughs) right.
2: (laughs) It's maddening, and like for me, I find it. So, so I tried to find a place of belonging because there is no community for multiracial people. Like they're just, one does not exist. And I really appreciate how you're trying to create one. I'm trying. And, um, <laughs> trying I, love so I love it. I love it. Um, and there has been like spaces where people have tried to create. So there's a mixed race studies conference that happens mm-hmm. every two years. Um, but it's an academic thing. So I'm an academic. So, um, that only started happening, I think, in 2010, where they were actually having mm-hmm. a conference just for people studying mixed race stuff. So it I feel like that's late in the game. Like, this has been happening for centuries. Like, I mean, this has there's been, been mixed people
0: for as long as there's been someone who decides to say, hey, let me cross that, you know, that mm-hmm.
2: terrain of some
0: sort. And, you know, yeah, we've been here. Yeah, there, so, right. And I think a lot of things too fall apart because there was a mixed race film festival that was here in Los Angeles for a long time called the Remix Festival. And um, I moved back to L.A. and I'm all excited. I'm like, I'm going to get involved this year. And that's the year they they go defunct. And it's like, <sighs> oh, but they're still active in small ways. But they're I I don't know what broke them up, but something broke it up. And so like only portion of it is going with one person that was involved and another portion is going with another person involved from what I've heard. Mm. Uh, So then you get these moments of like, okay, well, there's this and this isn't entirely my identity, but it's the closest thing to me that I can get. So I'll go for that. Um, Right. You know, there are small pockets of the community, but it would be nice if we had a way to identify in all of our different mixnesses in one space where it's just like, listen, I know you're Korean and white. And I'm Japanese, black and white, but here's a bunch of crossover that you and I have, like, let's hang out.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I'm always about, like, I've always been about focusing on commonalities and similarities, not differences. Right. And so it always confused me. I, until, I don't know, this is going to be really naive and I feel almost embarrassed to say this, but (laughs) even after college, I didn't really understand why people of marginalized groups or identities did not understand each other's struggle. Because I always just thought like, oh, you struggle from white supremacy and oppression in this way, and I struggle from heteronormativity and oppression in this way. How come we don't get along? Like, I always thought that people would see those commonalities rather than see the differences. But but this is the oppression Olympics that we're talking about.
1: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I can't let
0: your oppression be worse than my oppression because I'm the most put upon person. (laughs) Right. Right. Oh, my gosh. Someone's got to win. And it's
2: not going to be you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so Cutthroat. (laughs) But also that I think that's also a big part of white supremacy or at least the control or power that white supremacy has is that you divide the four the you know you divide your enemies you give them each other as a common en- enemy while you just sit back and wait for them oh, to yeah. destroy each other and yeah. I, i'm like you and i hate to say i hate to think of this as an us being naive but it I, and maybe it is maybe there is always a bit of naivety and hopefulness but um you're just sitting here and thinking like I am in this this space where I'm surrounded by people that are not like me. And even though this person is not like me, they also struggle in a way that's somewhat similar to me. And though we'll never fully understand or appreciate each other's different struggles, at least we know it so we can get together. And then you get that disappointment when you find out actually, you know, you're too different from me to be comfortable. Um, So just go ahead and stay in your own thing. Uh, That isolating of our groups, the, like, white supremacy is so strong, it's constantly teaching us to divide ourselves. Yeah. That we yeah. we just keep perpetuating it, and we don't stop it with our own kids. Like, we don't tell our kids, it's okay to go and do this stuff and unite with these folks, because it's like, no, no, no. Remember, at the end of the day, after we defeat that enemy, they're going to be our enemy again, so... You know, it's just this constant thinking that that's what's going to happen. And that's what I really love, um, I think, about the Women of Color Podcaster Group and a couple of the other uh, of color podcaster groups that I'm in having to do with this. um, I'm excited about your show. You know, I want you to succeed. I don't feel that you're in competition with me, even if we have crossover. So let's support each other. And boom, we both lift up together this concept does not seem to exist in like regular race relations. Yeah. Um, so you have yeah. to find it in little pockets. So like, okay, I can't find it in regular race relations, but I can find it in podcasting. So boom, now you and I are glowing up together and we're supporting each other and we're excited. But then there's always someone who jumps in and goes, yeah, but, you know, aren't you concerned that they're going to take away some of your audience or whatever? And you're like, well, no, because they if they care enough about to listen to my subject matter... Then they probably want more than just me talking about it, so they're right. gonna listen to her too. You know, like I wish we could apply some of the things that I'm discovering in our podcasting world into like the actual race relations. Oh my god, for real, for real.
2: <laughs> yeah, I like it because I mean, with podcasting, it's like someone once said to me that it, it, diversity and inclusion in podcasting is kind of like birds in the sky. Like you're, there's never gonna be so many birds in the sky that they're going to run into each other and collapse. And, you know, it's there's so many different things that you could be talking about, even on the same topic, so many different perspectives or ways that you could take it that I think that's probably why people don't feel like they're in direct competition. I don't know. Whatever it is, I'm down for it. I'm here for it. Right. Um, Yeah, I think there should be definitely more support. And also, I appreciate that, you know, I'm always scared to go into – women of color spaces. I never really identified like that until maybe my Mm. mid 20s, late 20s, because I was passing trying to pass. So for so many years, and really reaping the benefits of white privilege, given that I was living with my dad for so long, too, and I have light skin and all that. But being in groups like a lot of my friend groups, and I ended up seeking out a lot of friends and groups that are people of color, a lot of them first or second generation peoples, um, I never felt totally accepted because it's like, eh, you're kind of half, you're kind of a little bit like us, Mm -hmm. but you're really not like us. So I was like hesitant to join the women of color podcast, just waiting for someone to say some ignorant shit about biracial or mixed people or something somewhere along the way. And I'm so happy that I haven't seen that. And oftentimes, like, women of color is conflated with black. Well, that's, like, yeah, that's
0: exactly it. And honestly, my guest for the for the previous week, um, too, said the same thing. She is a an Asian and white mix as well. And she said, I was too afraid to join it at first because I associated with being black and I didn't want someone to have to tell me, oh, you're not black. And that is the fault of white folks, ref- mm-hmm. con- you know, putting women yep. of color to mean black because there's so many other people of color out there. Um, yeah. And so I think uh, definitely my last guess, but I don't know if you did it, uh, but it has happened to every person who has reached out to me to be on the show or if I've reached out to where they didn't have a black mix where they're like, I just want to clarify for you, I'm not mixed with black. And that's a, it's it's both uh, uh, people of color, women of color and mixed race, people assume mm-hmm. we're talking about a mixed black person here in the States. Right. It doesn't cross right. in the other in, in other countries, but definitely here in the States.
2: You know, what's funny is I went on a date with someone from a, a dating app last year, like very recently. And this person was first generation. I think he might've been Nigerian. And he said to me, so you're biracial, you're white, black. And I'm sitting across from him with oh, my really? face. And I was just like, <laughs> with my face. Is this <laughs> oh, like, is this a serious question? Like, I don't know if it was like kind of a cultural approach for him to ask. Huh. Instead of saying, well, what are you? He was like, are you black, white? Or if like really that was the only mix that he could possibly think of. I was just like, you know, this is what's wrong with our understanding of race in the right. United States and perhaps the world. But it can only be one thing. And when it's one thing, it's either black or white. This whole binary yeah. And we're so back flawed. to the binary. You're right. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, off, also too, and I think specific with Asian mixes, Asian white mixes in particular, I think we're the, I think this is where the militarization stuff comes in is that mm-hmm. in the military, because here in the United States until 1967 um, it was illegal to marry interracially, but military people could always get away with it ever since World War II. And the reason being is because that wife that yellow bride turned into whatever race of the person she married was. Right, right, So, Japanese brides who took the domestic, the domesticated class, I think, well, all Asian brides that had to take these domestication classes uh, when they married uh, military um, personnel, they had to take. Group, they had to be grouped with if you married a white military personnel you were white now and you had to associate with the other asian brides that married white men and if you were if you married a black man you had to take the the classes with the other wives that married black men and you had to associate only with black men so you were no longer your Asianness was erased and you were now black or white um and i think that mentality wow. whether people realize it or not continued on into now that people are getting married to people of different races or having babies with people of different races outside of wars. It's still where Asians are concerned. Uh, it's it's one of the questions I assume maybe you get it. I don't know, but I definitely get it. It's one of the questions I get, Oh, you're mixed with Asian and white. Um, was your dad stationed in such and such. And it's yeah. always less the, the assumption that yeah. it was my white father, which I do not have was stationed mm-hmm. in, in Japan. And that's why I have, that's why I'm a Japanese mix, you know? So, and your mom
2: is a whore and your mom is a prostitute and she sold herself to him.
0: Yeah. Right. So yeah. That, like there's a, it's a really weird thing that like, yes, here in the States, if you're biracial, that means you're black and white. And if you're, you're biracial and Asian, that means you're a military bride. And now, and now you're white or black, depending mm-hmm. on who you married. Um, I wonder if, if Latinx folks get this because, With the Latinx side, it's a little bit more complicated because they are already mixed themselves in a lot of cases. You know, there's not a whole lot of, I'm going to do quotation fingers, pure, you know, whatever the Latinx country it is, you know, pure Mexicans or pure Puerto Ricans or pure Colombians or whatever, because there is so much mixing um, between indigenous folks and Spanish folks and black folks and white folks and stuff. So I don't know if they'll have it quite the way Asian mixes do. Where this the assumption of? I, mean, I guess in that case they're just assumed to be Latinx. So it might be something just very specific to Asian mixes.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think the U.S. military has really done a number on Asianness in the United States mm-hmm. and how we understand it because of well, one what you're describing, which is, I never knew that the the domesticated classes, which is really interesting. That's definitely a way to get the Asian woman to become American and like, okay, Mm -hmm. now we're granting you this as a privilege. Mm -hmm. You get to be more American, either more white or more black. And now you're our ally. And it's like a way to diminish the Asian enemy type. Right. And to, to be like, well, we granted you whiteness. So, or we granted you, blackness we granted you americanness so now you're one of us and you have to get rid of all of that other stuff that might possibly be like an enemy within and they kind of go such a good job of it right they tell
0: you Mm -hmm. your kids cannot their brains cannot handle multiple languages so do not teach them and you know and so they put the kind of fear in them that makes them think that even if they get granted their citizenship they could be deported at any time you know, and then separated from their family, you know, their children and everything like that. So they did it. Yeah. Those classes, the war bride classes were, um, I've, I've gone to a couple of workshops or speaking engagements about, about the subject, uh, here at the Japanese American museum in Los Angeles. And, and, uh, and I know that my grandma took them because she talked about them when I was younger. Um, and Mm -hmm. one of her close friends who we referred to as, as auntie and uncle, they were the same. She, She had met this Japanese woman in one of these, um, American domest- domesticity classes is what the military called them um but we got war bread classes um they yeah they, and it was it was everything they can do to be like you know I know you cook rice and shit but that's not what we do here so you're going to learn how to cook right. a casserole and you're going to learn how to make um mm. you know these very american style dishes and and Um, so like, luckily my grandma was always a really good cook. So she made the American food as well, you know, as she made the Japanese food or she would like Japanize (laughs) the American food. I hate to even say it that way, but, um, you know, she'd find some kind of way to do that or whatever. Um, you know, like we always had rice and chili <laughs> together, <laughs> which was not yeah. a thing <laughs> that Americans would ever imagine doing <laughs> um, but yeah like theres there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff like that, so a couple of things um you did you did talk about um uh, being an academic, and uh, I think when we we spoke before, you mentioned something about i think it was when you were in your grad program that you kind of started to study race a little bit more Mm -hmm. or or was it based off of your experience as an undergrad that you kind of went into this direction is that is that
2: accurate um well in yeah so in undergrad I that's when I really started to feel like I was not white enough I was not enough in general um and I never felt Korean enough so I just I that's when I really like hit me in the face that I wasn't enough generally Mm -hmm. speaking even though I felt like really grounded in who I was as a person but my racial identity made me feel not enough um the first day of school of college like in the in the orientation they had this like students of color gathering and I went to it and I'm like oh now I can finally have a racial identity and like embrace it and I remember I walk into unity house and everybody was monoracial black or brown and I looked around and I was like cool do I just like slowly exit like Homer Simpson into the bushes or what and there was this other person who she looked white to me and she had this like blonde curly hair and we both looked at each other and just laughed like really hard <laughs> like how, how dare we think that we like belonged in this space oh no and so we both like told each other why we thought we belonged and she's like i'm jewish and i'm like oh well i'm biracial blah blah but i never went back because i was like oh shit i clearly don't belong you know what do i do no one looks like me so um that was like my first experience in undergrad
0: but i get why you don't feel this like why you didn't feel this way but it's just also like gosh this is what i'm talking about right like when we talk about why we're doing what we're doing it's these moments that we have that are so I don't even want to use the word triggering because in this particular case, I don't think it's that it's, it's like the reverse memorable. Yeah. Yeah, It's just just like the reverse of triggering. It's just like embedded now of like, how many ways can you, can the world tell me how not enough I am? Right. You know?
2: Yeah. And then, so yeah, I, I actually, I taught, um, I taught elementary school for a while, uh, when I first graduated college and I moved down to be near my mom and that was, eh, a little bit of a disaster. I mean, I guess we made progress. We have a better relationship and I definitely have a good relationship with my younger sister, but I went back to study sociology and race relations in particular, um, in my grad programs because of my experiences teaching and just kind of Mm. not directly like me search, which is what you call like research. That's directly about your identity (laughs) and your issues. I was like, I'm not ready to study biracial stuff. So let me just study race stuff, which of course is all about like the African-American experience mm. in a white world. Mm. So, and of course people were like, you can't study that cause you're not black. And I'm like, cool. Can you point to the dearth of, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> can you point to the dearth of academic uh, scholarship on mixed raceness and like being Asian white? Cause there really isn't anything. And this is even before 2010 when, Uh, one of the prominent articles Mm. on mono-racism came out. Mm. So I'm like, you know, if I'm going to study race, you have to start with what is so defining in the United States and kind of the world is this binary of black-white. So, yeah, that's where I started. And then I finished my Ph.D. Um, Part of it was, like, some of the work I did was on race relations, Um, kind of like what is it like for people who are not black um, to understand, like, these messages of blackness in hip hop. And, you know, not a lot of people enjoyed that one either. Cause they're like, well, you're not black. And I'm like, well, right. I'm kind of looking at it through the lens of people who aren't black and right. how they understand it, but I'm still within the literature of like the black white binary. So anyway, yeah, I, I ended up studying a lot of that, um, that race stuff, which ended up being a lot of binary stuff. And now these past few years I've really tried to dive more into mixed race, multiracial, biracial stuff. And, um, especially in the last couple of years, based on like the media that's been released, Mm -hmm. I've been craving like different storylines and more representation of mixedness. Right. So like Oscar's so white, this is what, 2016, the Oscar's Mm -hmm. so white thing, which is really like, Oscars aren't black enough is kind of how it was interpreted in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways, uh, given Chris rocks like narration. And, um, I think that that was like a defining moment for me where I felt like, again, why can't we support each other? Why does it always have to be about one thing? And, um, it's almost like black folks have to get through the door first and then the floodgates
0: may possibly open for the, the Brown and yellow people, you know?
2: Yeah. And it's, it's, hard because you don't want to say, okay, you guys go do the hard work and then we'll just stand on your back. Right. Like right. that's not what it's about either. And I think a lot of the messages have gotten skewed to feel like that for people who are doing the work in the black community. And I think it's unfortunate that we can't communicate better and work together in a better way. I mean, maybe, maybe we we're starting to, and we're working towards that now, but yeah, I felt like that. And then like insecure in Atlanta and black Panther, like these are amazing works produced by, you know, black folks who are talking about their blackness. And I totally embrace that, but then I'm like, is there gonna be some Asian stuff now? Yeah. You know, like well, that's <laughs> what's gonna sucked be to me. Now? I want to talk to you about this because I want to see if I'm the
0: if if I if this could be something that other Asians felt, uh, other or even Asian mixes. So Black Panther comes out, and as a mixed black kid, Black Panther was everything for me. I mean, I even watched it the other night. Like I watch it pretty much every week, or a couple <laughs> times a week. It, it it was such a huge thing for me in terms of representation, and even though I don't look. As a mixed kid, I don't look like a lot of the people on the screen. Their things speak to me, you know, like Okoye's right. personality it, it definitely. I connect different with, and Nakia's personality I connect with, and so I do feel representation, even though they don't look like mixed me, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then, just a couple months later, Crazy Rich Asians comes, and everybody's talking mm-hmm. about it like the Asian Black Panther, and I hated this movie. I hated this representation of Asianness. And even though it wasn't Japanese Asianness, it was the ugliest side of Asianness that I would want Americans to have access to and get the mm. wrong idea about us as a whole population because since they think we're all the same. Mm-hmm. I don't want their version of Asianness to be these insane rich people who are super duper privileged and won't look at the mongrel american, you know, mixed american mm-hmm. as a um as a fully formed asian person. And yeah. yet and yet like people are super celebratory of this work and I don't want to be so contrary that I'm just like, oh no, that's it it's it's shit and I Like I'm excited to finally see a whole bunch of Asian faces on on an American movie, but um, they did it wrong. You know, like I don't want to be that person, and yet I definitely feel that way. So, did you see this movie? And do you do you do you have feelings about what the presentation was for Asians?
2: And I have the exact opposite reaction. So. (laughs) Oh really? Okay, good, good. I'm glad. Let's talk about it. Yeah, let's talk. Let's get into this one because this is one of the lemons we squeezed on my episode of okay. that media representing that I mentioned earlier. Cause I saw that movie and I'm like, Deshaun, we have to talk about this right now. Like this has to be our topic. Cause I agree with you. I totally, totally get and respect your opinion that this is not the one monolithic Asian <laughs> experience we want everyone to have. Right. Um, I loved it for the fact that it was successful and put yes. Asians on the screen. Like, that's really what I loved about it. Me too. I had such a powerful, visceral reaction to the movie. I went by myself in a theater that was really full. Like, it wasn't sold out, but it was very full. Okay. And I left there. I... um I I cried through, like, the movie during parts of it where it's, like, sad and, like, emotional. But then I left there and got in the car and bawled my face off. Like, I could not stop crying, and I had no idea why. Mm -hmm. Like, I just had to feel whatever it was Mm -hmm. and then, like, understand and unpack it afterwards. And I have not ever had such a reaction to a film Mm -hmm. um, like that. And I did feel like it was our Black Panther in the sense that... I felt like there were everyone in it was Asian and I felt like we were seen. Right. Of course, not mixed. I mean, there was no mixedness in it, but like I felt like this was recognition for, you Wait, know, Wait, wasn't Asians the existing. main character's
0: wasn't she like her father was meant to be white and just gone?
2: I didn't get that from Constance Wu's character. I thought that she was supposed to be full Chinese, but actually um What's his name? Henry Golding, the main character in real life. He's mixed. Yeah. In real life, he's mixed. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I I had this like visceral reaction where I was uncontrollably crying and it was so powerful for me. But I totally understand, like it used all the same tropes of uh, rom-com of white people. It was just Mm -hmm. like, you know, yellow washing uh, white rom-com. But I feel like even if they did it wrong, it's a a starting point. Maybe? Yeah, I mean, so I definitely like I'm not mad at us
0: using a similar trope or whatever because this is how Americans view mu- movies, right? Like um yeah. you got to you you got to be in love and then some shit has to go down that ruins everything and then you have to persevere and through all odds including possibly, you know, saying goodbye to your family forever, you you get it to you get it together and you live happily ever after. Like Right. That's how Americans view movies. So fine. Let's go ahead and co- and you know, use the formula. And put Asian faces on the screen. I'm that um mm-hmm. yes, and there was aspects of that that I felt great. I was excited to see, and and something that that Crazy Rich Asians did that Black Panther did not is that there were not any non-Asian people, like
2: right. there wasn't
0: even like a, a random token white guy or or something like that right. that popped up. So in that respect, I was really excited about it. You know, I was like, oh, this is awesome. It's just that to me because I have such an issue with privilege now because it's like, <laughs> like I'm always working for rich, really rich people. Like that's been my job outside of podcasting is always where I am in support of extremely rich people. Mm-hmm. And so I see this level of privilege on a regular basis and I'm, you know, I'm an arm's length away from it and yet not living within it. Right. And right. never invited, you know, I'm invited to serve the table, but not sit at the table in these respects. Mm-hmm. And so I have like my personal um uh, relation to that level of richness uh is is, is kind of negative for me so i see that and i'm like is this what i want white people to think of you know mm-hmm. a- as terms of asian representation um, because i think that could be a detriment for those of us who don't necessarily feel those oh, definitely. Um, those archetypes or whatever uh and then a- and also as much as, as amazing a job as she did, that that archetype of the hardcore Asian mom that mm-hmm. that has like almost a reverse side of the Oedipal relationship with their, to their son, and yeah. how no woman is like ever going to be like that thing right. is such a huge. Asian stereotype for an Asian mom that like I didn't want us to be volunteering it to white people you know what I'm saying like there was things like that 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 got really tough and so I like I'm sitting here and the same thing happened to me with Wonder Woman too in terms of woman representation I'm sitting here going like I wanted to be so excited about this and yet it did all these things that made me be like oh white people are gonna not understand it right you know and and so it was it was sad for me in that respect but like what you say like the whole feeling to let like let it wash over you and and then unpack your feelings afterwards i definitely had moments of that i mean there was just moments of seeing like a full screen of asian faces speaking english so i know they're here you know i know it's here for an american audience and just being like i definitely have never seen this you know
2: yeah and stuff like
0: that like there was definitely things about it that i was excited about but like the overall story and 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 things and then of course i have some feelings about Aquafina and her, um, pre- I don't know what to call it. <laughs> her, 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 her deal. <laughs> yeah, her, yeah. like, her, her, like, uh, co-opting blackness thing that is in there Mm -hmm. you know i mean i'm a mixed asian that is black and asian so i i am accused of this type of stuff often when people don't realize what my mix is so you know uh, i have i definitely have like a whole bunch of uncomfortable feelings and it's something that like black panther did not do to me did not put me in these conflicts these conflicting Mm -hmm. feelings whereas crazy rich asians did and also wonder woman did as as a woman too i um i was so upset about being the only woman that did not like Wonder Woman, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I have, I have these things that I, I don't mean to be that anti these things that, that I'm hoping would benefit us, but I, it was just my, my natural reaction to them. So it's these things of like, we almost get there, but it's right. how I felt about that movie. And, and yeah, Wonder woman.
2: I totally, I totally get like the problematic. I mean, there's a lot of problematic things about, the movie that I definitely don't overlook and I totally get the cultural appropriation of Aquafina. I feel like it's kind of like with um, Ken Jeong so you know what's his name Mr. something Mr. He's in... Chow when he's yes Mr. Chow in The Hangover and you know a lot of Asian people were like you do anything for a dollar like sell out like how mm-hmm. could you represent us in this way and He's like, yeah, but that got me famous, and I had my own show, right that was you, know, Dr. Ken, and he's doing these other things. So it was like a starting point. It's almost like you right. have to bow down to validate the stereotypes for whites or for the American audience before you are allowed any inch to move forward.. Right. Um, and you know, movies, black movies, there's been decades and decades and decades of all black movies. And that have been on the silver screen, not like Black Panther since it is a you know a superhero movie and things like that, but we've not had that like we've had yeah Asian Asians Asian haven't people, had that yeah, just two major pictures like that, you know, uh, Joy Luck Club being the other one. so we don't have time we haven't had time to fuck it up and then make it better. like I also this is like- <laughs> appreciate that you didn't
0: mention Ronin because although Ronin had because Ronan had Keanu Reeves in it which ugh. um the what they did to it like the Ronin is a real story that happened in Japan and then they get almost all Japanese cast and then they put a Chinese woman in them in one of the major roles and then they put Keanu in the other major role and then call him half-breed which was not a part of the real life story so oh, it wow. was like a, one of those things where I was excited that it was a all all Japanese clash for primary and then they did they fucked it up again so yeah like we we don't have that many on the asian side and uh on you know for american audiences but i agree with you i do think that you we do have to pander to get in you know actually there's something that that uh eminem said when he first got famous so this is 1999 or 2000 and i remember this back when mtv still played music um (laughs) uh his first his first single was slim shady and so he kind of got in with it as a bubblegum um white rapper and so everybody was like yeah he's cute or whatever you know he let it let him do his little bubblegum rap you know he's Mm. he's Dr. Dre's token friend, and then his next track, which I forget what it was, came in harder, and everybody's like, "Wait, is that that same white boy?" And so he didn't. He did an interview. He, he. They were doing something where he was in the studio with Dre, and they were talking, and Dre was explaining, like people came at him hard, like, "Why are you, like, caping for this white boy rapper? He sounds like you know, he's he's walking around in his superhero costume like an idiot." And mm-hmm. um, and he explains to him, he's like, "You don't understand." I had to make sure white people were willing to buy his shit before <laughs> before <laughs> black people would. And then and Eminem is sitting at the chair at the booth, and he looks at the camera, and he goes, "I I tricked you, I got you. Now I'm in there, and you can't you can't let me go." Right. And I remember that moment, and that has like been seared in my brain as like, "Oh, that's how that you know that that's how he got to be the white you know the famous right, white rapper is because right. he pandered to." who was going to allow him who was going to pay him enough money from the
2: jump so that he can continue his career um yeah i so, think that happens with like a lot of female artists i mean <clears throat> beyonce for example um she also <laughs> had to pander to the like sexualized, you know and she's still... when she was a teenager mind you yeah exactly and she still does but now it's like it's changed from something that's been put on her externally as something she embodies internally and look at all the racial justice stuff she and her husband jay-z do together now and so because she was able to gain that fame and get that platform and that foundation going from her sexualized self she was able to kind of rise to stardom because if she didn't and she wanted to do racial justice stuff from jump, like she would not be nearly as famous if we'd even know who she is today, you know? So it's like you always have to kind of buy into whatever the – existing structure is before you can kind of do your own thing within it. And I just, I'm all about like a total revolution, but you know, see here's, here's
0: where I'm at. I'm at one of those things where like, yeah, like, yes, I think what you're saying is absolutely true. Like you do got to pander to get in there. Now we're in there and look like, look, Asian movies can make a billion dollars or close to a billion Mm dollars. Like, so let's get it, let's get it going. Um, I, I, I totally get that. But I've always been of the, of the kind of thing where it's like, I can't wait until we can have problematic movies at the same level that white people can have problematic movies and it's not a thing. Like I want to achieve the ability to be able to be problematic (laughs) without it being a problem kind of (laughs) like I'm waiting for that time. Unfortunately, it's this weird kind of arc, right? You got to start problematic and then go into non-problematic just so that and do that long enough so that eventually you can just be like, no, we get to be trash and it's okay. Um, Yeah. That
2: would be that would be
0: my dream for people yeah. of color. Let us be yeah, trash, too.
2: Connect to people and uh, trick them like the M&M. Um, the M&M tricks. Yeah. Right. Get them to like you. Yeah. Um, I'm
0: glad we got to talk about this because I, I haven't been able to talk about this much with uh, other Asian folks. or Or I've had the conversation where someone was just like, do not rain on my parade on this movie. And I'm like, I get that. So I'll back off. Mm-hmm. You know, like because mm-hmm. I I understand, like if anybody even tries to tell me one thing that they disagreed with in Black Panther, including my husband, I was like, This is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> like right. this is my moment. This is not for you. Um, so yeah, I, I get that. But I've been wanting to kind of talk about this because it because it's one of those things like all I hope that come like for me, I guess up until now, all I've thought about crazy restrictions is I hope that it opens the door to have, you know, five more Asian movies this year and then 10 Asian movies the following mm-hmm. year. You know, like, mm-hmm. I want to see full-ass Asian casts in movies. I want to see full-ass Black casts in movies. Um, mainstream movies, not ones that are just for us, I think, is right. is, the, is the thing. And I, I hope that is the gift that Crazy Rich Asians does give um, American cinema.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, so I'm going to share something personal that has to do with Crazy Rich Asians. So I do aerial silks like um, Cirque du Soleil, aerial silks, like on the fabrics where you twirl around. And so I'm actually doing my first solo act ever. And we had to do we had to choose a movie soundtrack to do it to. And I was originally creating this act to do to one of Beyonce songs because I love her. And I was like, all right, movie track, of course I'm going to do Crazy Rich Asian. So I'm actually doing the song Yellow by Catherine Ho oh, and okay. embracing not the Crazy Rich Asian like glamour part of the film, but more of my story in the act is more of a transformation of feeling uncomfortable in my own yellowness or my own like racial identity and then kind of transforming and it becoming something that I embrace and I use it to uplift me. Like that's the story that's arc so of awesome. my act. And I'm using that song too, because I love this background behind that um, song because it, it's a, taken from cold plays yellow. And the director, um, John Cho, he was like, I want to adapt this song and make it our own and turn something that was an epithet for him um, as a child, into something that feels empowering and something he can embrace. And so I love how that all kind of comes together nice, in my yeah. act. So, yeah, I, I I took something from the film that I felt really spoke to kind of the progress I've had in the last couple of years of my own racial identity and biracialness.
0: Right. How, what a beautiful thing to connect, something that was kind of created in whiteness and adopted, you know, growing into or connecting into asian and then you are both those things so that's yeah <laughs> that's an awesome way to to tell your story through your silks I, I I I is it gonna be something that will be
2: viewable do you
0: put things on Instagram um, or
2: something yeah I think uh they're gonna have a professional videographer so I might be able to put it up on YouTube for people to access, even if you don't want it public, could I see it? Because I want to oh, see yeah, that journey. Totally yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll definitely send it to you. <laughs> fully, fully selfish reasons. I don't care about anybody. Can I see it? um yeah. <laughs> No, that's awesome, and I think that, and that's probably something that will be um sort of therapeutic or or healing for you too, because yeah. you know you've been on this journey towards. Um, feeling grounded or comfortable, fully comfortable in your identity, your racial identity. So this could be something that
2: is really amazing for you. Um, right. Like, like you and your podcast. Like, I feel like this is kind of one of my creative mm-hmm. pieces to help me feel full.
0: Yeah. Like, you know, cause the transformation of this show for me was going from me selfishly wanting to talk to other mixed race people for my own gratification to oh my gosh, this is actually therapeutic um, for me and my guests to, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, this is now therapeutic for my audience members based off of what they're emailing me to now it's a responsibility, not a, you know, not a bad burden, but like a, a, a positive burden of i need to do this for my people type of thing now like this is the the trend the the markers that i've hit in the in the eight or so months that i've been doing the show and Mm -hmm. now and now it's now it's like finally we can get to community you know like i've been i've been on this track and now i'm in this this community thing so you can tell from earlier episodes where i'm just talking about mixedness with people and then i get to a point where i'm just like you know what, no, we need to be living our mixed-ass lives by any means, you know, like, blah, blah, blah. And so now that's how I, I'm getting to the point where my show starts to end on this, like, empowerment in our mixed-ass lives that I didn't, that I had to do the show to get to, even if I right. thought I was already living like that. Um, and so maybe, too, for you, your show, or also, you know, and as you continue to investigate your your identity or this performance, and I think anything that's creative that you don't have to actually necessarily speak the words of what your experience is or what you're going through can be like way more, I don't know how to describe it, but like that, like just glowing inside, like it's just a way for right. internally, you just wah wah wah. you're just throbbing in all of your, in, in all of your mixedness. So I, yeah. I, um, I, I, that's why I want to see it for, again, going back to my early selfishness. I just want to see someone have that experience, um, because I would be able to internalize it for myself and be like, oh gosh, I can see it. I can see it happening for this person. Um, I think that would be exciting, but yeah. since we are coming to the end of our show and, mm-hmm. um, I, I, and this, like, I'm so excited about how the way this went. Cause there was, there was things that we kind of already pre-talked about, but how it, how it turned out for this episode is, um, Yeah, this is great. I'm just, I'm just really excited. (laughs) I'm excited. I can't wait. I can't wait for other people to hear it. Uh, but, uh, let's get into our kind of, our kind of cool down for it. Um, tell me having gone through the journey that you've gone through with your mixedness and where you're at right now, what do you love about being mixed?
2: Yeah, this took me a long time to get to in my life, but, (laughs) and it may change tomorrow. So, (laughs) right. Right. I think to to pull um, a line from one of the academics, Sylvia Winter. She uses the line, "When you're not white, you see things from a liminal space of alterity. Like you see things from kind of a, a different angle than either one or the other. If you are trying to go through the world as someone who's not white. Um, and so I feel like now, what I love about me being mixed is I feel a sense of racial capital. I feel like I have this language, this knowledge, this experience, this meaning about race that only biracial or mixed race people have. And I use that to my advantage as like a toolkit to move through the world and see things from different perspectives and see the similarities that we have as opposed to the differences and focusing on like when people speak with an accent focusing on the words that they say and not like how different the, the word is when they say it with their accent, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this term actually comes from a friend of mine, uh, another academic, Chandra Waring, talking about racial capital. And she studies black, white. Um, actually, she studies biracial people. She's black, white herself. And some of the people she's interviewed are black, white, but there's other like white, Asian and different mixes. And so she coined this term racial capital, as a way for us to feel like it's not all negative. Like you have this special way of seeing things that other people aren't accustomed to, you know, using or seeing. And that should be a positive for you. That should be something that you embrace. And so I feel like recently I've come to feel that way in the last few years that Mm. I love that I can see things differently um, because of my, family experiences and because of my life experiences and things like that
1: right
0: that's awesome um i'm gonna look into that a little bit more because i haven't heard the term racial capital used before
2: yeah i could send you some stuff oh yeah if you wouldn't mind
0: um that'd be awesome um, yeah, of course Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate you coming on uh, the show. And I also appreciate the shout out that I got on your show. Oh, of Um, course. I was so, it was
2: giving me life. No, and I love
0: love knowing that, you know, it's these weird moments of feeling like at the end of the day, I'm just doing the show for me and hopefully people listen to it and I hope it it helps other people. But, um, you know, I'm not making any money doing it or anything like that. So it's entirely just something that is healing and therapeutic for me. And Mm -hmm. the gravy is sometimes it's also that for other people, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, But when you do actually get to hear that an exchange you've had, 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 had an impact on somebody that, I mean, I don't know. Like, you just sit there and you, like, I'm going off of that for my whole day is, is like, oh, something, something that I, that I was involved in had, had some kind of effect on somebody for the positive and, and it, you know, it means enough a lot to me too, because for everything that um, my guests have told me they've gotten, I've gotten too. you know, like for me, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's all right. So thank you so much for coming on the show. First of all, I've loved this conversation. I want to talk to you many, many more times. Um, And I'm excited about your show, but why don't you go ahead and tell everybody how they can remind them, how they can find you, find your show
2: and uh and yeah do that <laughs> all right so again deshaun and i talk about all sorts of random stuff but we come from very different racial perspectives and so a lot of our stuff is about race and pop culture again it's called squeeze in lemons we're too cool for the g so it's squeeze in with the i n <laughs> at the end and um we're on soundcloud and we're on itunes so check us out on one of those platforms please cool Well, thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. And uh, don't forget to be your mixed ass self. Yeah, thanks so much, Charmaine. Thanks for creating this platform for us and (laughs) sharing all these experiences. It's been awesome listening to them. Thank you.
0: Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Johnson. Music is by David Bogan, The One. And if you like what you heard on Militantly Mix, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Main Hustle Media, turn your side hustle into your main hustle.